Hello everyone. My name is Frederick Kieschen. I write the Necker Substack and Twitter account, and today's a first because I'm sharing my conversation with David Clark, the author of an unpublished biography about Floyd Odlum. So I recently published a piece on Odlum, who was a, a Depression-era value and distressed investor. And at first, his life seemed very straightforward. He was a young lawyer from Colorado, moved to New York, became a dealmaker in utilities, which were one of the growth industries of the 1920s. He started an investment fund on the side, uh, raised cash, and then avoided the crash of 1929. And in the wake of the crash with his investment company Atlas, he acquired other investment trusts at steep discounts to their underlying portfolios, closed 22 transactions in total, grew it to be the largest trust with $150 million in assets. He married a famous racing pilot named Jackie Cochran, served in the government during World War II, and retired in Palm Springs. So this story and the lessons seemed very simple, very clean, right? A young investor sidesteps to crash, makes a fortune, does it so in investing in undervalued companies, becomes famous, retired, case closed. But after digging into Clark's work, uh, I realized that this sort of official narrative was wrong. And there was a reason why the name Odlum had sort of disappeared from the record and he faded into obscurity. And in this conversation, we're going to get into David's background, how he found the story, the detailed work that he did, and the surprising facts that he uncovered about the triumph and the tragedy of Adlam's life. Uh, just one note, you can buy uh, David's unpublished biography by contacting him directly. I believe uh, his information in the Substack piece. Now, without further ado, my conversation with David Clark. Thank you for listening. David. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really glad we can have this conversation. Really grateful. And I wanted to start off by asking you sort of if you could give me just sort of very briefly your your background and how you found your way to the to the story of Floyd Odlum. What what sort of brought you to that that man to that topic? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, for having me. I I appreciate it. Uh, 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 I've, I've always thought Floyd Odlum was more interesting than he got credit for. And it's nice that somebody else uh, is interested in talking about him for a few minutes. Um, it, I'm retired now. Uh, my background is I, uh, I graduated from Harvard and from Harvard Law School in 1981. I clerked for a federal judge for a year and then I went into private practice. <laughs> Uh, with a firm that was called uh, Piper and Marbury at the time, and is now called DLA Piper. Um, when I joined it, it was about a hundred lawyer firm in Baltimore. Today, it's a firm with four thousand or five thousand lawyers all over the world, um, which is not atypical of what has happened to to law firms if they wanted to survive and and thrive in the in those decades. Um, and uh, uh, but I stayed there that whole time and uh, practiced corporate and securities litigation. Um, and as I say, I retired at the end of 2019. Um, how I came to Floyd Odlum, I guess there was a part of me, and this is maybe true of a lot of, of practicing attorneys who, who thought maybe I would have been happier if I had had some sort of scholarly or academic career. 
Um, I, I taught as an adjunct uh, uh, professor at the University of Maryland Law School for four years, uh, corporate law, and really enjoyed that. Um, so I always wanted to have kind of a scholarly project as a, a hobby, I guess. And uh, so there was a period during which I, I was looking for someone who I thought was interesting to me. Um, interesting enough to other people that that he or she was deserving of a biography, and yet there had been no biography written. I was kind of looking for a little uh, niche, if you will. Um, and uh, there were a couple of candidates I considered at one time or another, but eventually I focused on, on Floyd Idlum. Um, if I recall correctly, I originally became aware of him. I was reading some biographical material about Howard Hughes. And there was a mention of the fact that uh, Howard Hughes had acquired the RKO movie studio from Floyd Odlum. And there was a mention that the people in the movie industry at the time thought that maybe Odlum had sold it to Hughes for a sweetheart price because he was hoping that Hughes's TWA would buy airplanes from Convair, which was the airplane manufacturer that... Uh, that Odlum controlled at the time. And I remember sort of thinking, who is this person I've never heard of <clears throat> who would be so prominent in those different, uh, completely different fields that he would have, you know, that kind of contact with Howard Hughes uh, uh, at a couple different points. Um, and so I started to, to look into Odlum. Um, and what I discovered is that, um, there has been a great deal of writing about his second wife, Jackie Cochran, who was a famous uh, flyer. Um, and, and he tends to get mentioned as a background figure, obviously, in all of those biographies. And um, he also will appear fleetingly in a lot of histories of other people, such as Howard Hughes um, and um, Orson Welles, because he owned RKO Studios at the time that Welles made uh, Citizen Kane, and there was pressure from uh, the Hearst uh, Empire to to squash that movie. And then later, um, as I as I discovered, Odlum probably had as much as anybody to do with running Welles out of Hollywood um, uh, after Citizen Kane. But I started anyway. I I kept doing research and increasingly found that um, that he was involved in an awful lot of very interesting things. And, and yet there had never been anything remotely like a full biography of him. And uh, so in 19, uh, not 19, 2006, I became sort of decided he was the one I was going to focus on. Got it. And um my when i first and I'm, I'm just realizing i think i'm i've been mispronouncing his his name the entire time so if, if Odlum is um is correct but when i first sort of read about the story um it seemed to me sort of very simple and straightforward right this young lawyer gets involved in utilities it's this growth industry he starts to sort of invest and speculate with with friends on on his own um, the crash happens. He was sort of uh, prescient and, and, and raised cash. And then he starts on this 
um, journey of, of first rolling up these other investment companies and then um, doing a lot of other deals. And then he retires sort of to Palm Springs on this beautiful ranch. And his, his wife is this famous uh, racing pilot. And it all seems sort of very neatly uh, packaged. Um, and yet he was sort of completely forgotten. Um, and I just couldn't really understand that until I sort of read more of what you'd um, put together. Um, and I'm just curious sort of if, if, if you could kind of outline, you've done a lot of research. I'd love to just briefly hear where you found in terms of what your research process was, where you went and what you sort of uncovered that, you know, surprised you or that was very different from how the story had been, had been told in, you know, newspapers or, or profiles or obituaries. Uh, sure. There are a number of questions embedded in there, but I'll, I'll try to address them. Um, I mean, first, you are absolutely right about the um, uh, sort of strange way in which he disappeared from the public view. I mean, in the 30s, the 40s and the 50s, he was regularly referred to in the newspapers and in Time magazine, sort of the way that Warren Buffett has been in our own time. He was sort of viewed as this um, uh, genius stock picker, people would sort of ask questions like, okay, his company Atlas is sitting on a big pile of cash. Where is he going to invest next? You know, sort of like uh, uh, that was the sort of regard in which he was held. Um, when he passed away in 1976, there was a little mention of it on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and then since then, he has has really just sort of disappeared, um, as you say, and uh, very few people have heard of him today. I guess that's happened to an, a number of figures. Um, one of the people he was close to was Dwight Morrow, who nobody's heard of today, but who uh, in the 20s uh, was was considered a likely presidential candidate and was so well known that uh, when he passed away, they interrupted the radio broadcast of the World Series to tell people, and yet nobody's heard of Point Morrow today. Um, but, uh, but in any event, as far as the research pro process went, um, uh, th th there have been probably three places where I have found uh, a lot of original documentation um, that in a lot of cases, I don't think anybody else had ever looked at. Uh, first and most importantly, Odlum has something on the order of 150,000 pages of documents at the Eisenhower Library, which is in Abilene, Kansas. Um, and at the time I first became interested in him, those papers, even though the library had owned them for some years, were not open to the public because the library had not had the resources process them yet. Um, so when I first inquired about going there, I was told they weren't they weren't available. I couldn't come look at them. Uh, I, I was lucky enough, and I don't frankly even remember today how I I where I got this, but in any event, I got a copy of the written instrument by which his widow's estate had gifted the documents to the presidential library. And I saw there was a provision in there where the estate had reserved the right to grant access to anybody it wanted. So um, I, I eventually was able to contact the representatives of the estate and to reach an agreement with them where I was given access to the papers. Um, and, and I will say, I didn't want to write an authorized biography. I, I wanted to be able to write a biography where I was free to, to 
state whatever conclusions I had reached. Um, and in order to get access to the papers, I did have to agree to a very limited uh, uh, substantive right for the estate. It, essentially, uh, if, if there's anything in the book that they deem to be derogatory to Jackie Cochran, um, they can sort of demand that I provide proof for it. Um, and um, there's a, a standard in there. There has to be reasonable evidence or something. So that they, they certainly don't have a, a veto right or an editorial right, but there is a process we could go through. And in a very limited number of instances, the estate has asked me to tweak some passages, um, but, but ultimately it has not, to my mind, changed the substance of anything at all. Um, and indeed, um, one of the things about Jackie Cochran is she invented this childhood for herself that is in her biography and that has been routinely repeated in, in biographies of her, that she was given away by her family to another incredibly poor, hateful family that treated her terribly. Um, uh, that that is not true, um, and um, I was eventually the the estate as late as when I was dealing with them in the 2006 still rejected the idea that various relatives of hers who were coming forward and saying it's not true they they wouldn't agree with that. But I eventually persuaded the estate um, that uh, that in fact the story these erstwhile relatives were telling was the true story of her background. Um, I, there was a document that I obtained under the Freedom of Information Act from the FBI that laid out uh, some findings they had made, and that's what finally persuaded the estate. Um, but anyway, that's detour. Um, but I, I, I have um, spent, I think at this point, boy, how long? I think three weeks plus a couple more business days um, in the library uh, out in Abilene. It's not the easiest place in the world to get to unfortunately. Um, and, and I certainly have not read every single page that's in there, but I have, uh, there is a, is now a finding guide that was prepared. And I've certainly, um, I think found everything of real significance in the papers and I've incorporated that into my work. So that's, that's one source. The other, um, uh, very, very helpful source, especially because Odlum's papers I think what happened is, is that he had his secretary while he was in the prime of his life would keep 10 years worth of correspondence. But as they rolled forward, they would call the older stuff. And it was only kind of later in his life that that process fell through. And so on a lot of subjects, the only stuff that's in Abilene is from the last 10 or 20 years of his life. There's not a full run of correspondence from the time you'd really love to see it in the 30s and 40s. Um, but in that period, in the 30s, he employed a PR man named Alexander Gumberg, who's very interesting in his own right. Uh, there there are, are certain conspiracy theories who think he was a double agent working for both Wall Street and, and the Soviets. But um, in any event, he was Odlum's PR man in the 30s. And his papers are at the uh, Wisconsin Historical Society in Madison, Wisconsin. And I've also spent a fair amount of time going through those. Unfortunately, there's a lot of material uh, in there relating to the work that he did for Adlam in the 30s. Um, 
And then the last of the three places, which is a good deal more accessible than the first two, is the, uh, the Library of Congress, which has the papers for uh, a number of people that that Odlum dealt with, uh, particularly during the course of his government service in World War II. Um, so those are those are the physical sources that um, um, that I've looked at, and then the. As, as I'm sure you know, increasingly today on the internet is just unbelievable the stuff that is becoming available if you're willing to keep searching and searching and searching and searching. And, uh, um, you know, you can you can look for Odlum in every newspaper that's been published for the last hundred years and, and so on and so forth. And so I have just done a huge amount of work just finding stuff on the internet and reading it and and uh, and then pulling out the little pieces about Odlum and then putting them together in a narrative that focuses on him as opposed to him just being a peripheral character in somebody else's narrative. Um, and so that's um, that that's sort of the process. Um, as as far as as what I found about him that may be different from the accepted view. Um, a couple of things. Um, while I don't have any direct evidence of this, I think um, it's very likely that his initial financial success with his investment company, Atlas, was probably based on insider trading. Um, insider trading was not illegal in the 20s. It was routine. Um, but I think it's it's no coincidence that when Odlum set up an investment fund, he focused on utility stocks at the same time he was a senior officer for electric bond and, and uh, share, Ibasco. Um, Ibasco is a company that General Electric set up to invest in utilities so that there would be people who buy the electrical equipment that General Electric was manufacturing. Um, and so Ibasco was this huge elephant in the room out there investing huge amounts of money in, in the utilities business. And his day job was to know what they were doing, and his sidelight was to invest in utility stocks. So, um, you know, the very high rates of return that he earned in the 20s, I think, were probably attributable to the fact that he that he had inside knowledge about what Ibasco and uh, other companies were doing. Um, the, the tremendous success he had in the 20s attracted more money from friends who heard how well he was doing it, obviously wanted to, to be involved in that. Um, the, the standard narrative is that he saw the stock market crash coming and that he had 80% of the fund's money in cash when the uh, market crashed in 1929. Uh, that is not true. Um, um, he, in the late 30s, he was called to testify under oath by the SEC when it was doing his, its investigation of the uh, investment trust uh, industry. And, and there he gave um, what presumably was accurate testimony about what had happened to the assets. And, and in fact, he was fully invested in utility stocks when the crash had happened uh, and took about a 23% hit in the portfolio. Um, he probably didn't take nearly as bad a hit as a lot of other people did because utility stocks having not run up to quite the same crazy levels that a lot of other stuff had didn't crash as badly as a lot of other stuff. And, and also he was not uh, 
uh, was not leveraged. So, um, you know, he was not buying stocks on margin. So, um, but, but the idea that he saw it coming, um, which he repeated for the rest of his life was not true. Um, and then I guess the, the other thing that most surprised me is that very often, uh, especially on, on things on the internet, but also in, in books that continue to be published, you will read that he was one of the 10 richest men in the country or even one of the 10 richest men in the world, which is even at his peak is so far off from being true. It's remarkable, but he, he, he was broke at the end of his life. Um, I mean, even at his peak, he made $100,000 a year which he paid himself from his investment company. There was only one 18 month period right at the beginning where he ever paid himself more than that in a year. Um, as I say, at one point in the book, $100,000 a year, while that was a huge amount, it's a lot of money today, it was a huge amount of money in the 30s, the 40s and the 50s, but, but nonetheless, that would not have made him one of the 10 highest paid executives at General Motors. Um, you know, much less in the country. There were there were hundreds of executives in the United States who made more than money than that. Um, and then, you know, obviously the other aspect of being the richest man is is assets as opposed to salary. And um, I, it, it's clear that his personal wealth was never greater than somewhere between five and ten million dollars, um, which again is. Uh, is a lot of money today. It was a huge amount of money then, but there are scores, if not hundreds, of personal fortunes in the United States that, um, that at that time, that would have dwarfed uh, uh, his. Um, I mean, one person he dealt with a lot, Harrison Williams, for example, had a personal worth right before the stock market crash of eight hundred million dollars, um, which was probably a hundred times greater than the the peak. Uh, uh, wealth that 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 Adlam ever had personally, um, and part of the problem is that um, people tend to blur Adlam personally with Atlas Corporation, which was the trust that he ran uh, until 1960. Um, there certainly was a time when Atlas Corporation was the largest investment trust in the world. Um, in the early 30s, its assets peaked at something between 130 and 150 million dollars. Um, but but at that time, Floyd probably owned two percent of the company. So to to equate that with personal wealth um, is is uh, misleading. Um, and and Atlas shrank steadily from there because frankly that was more capital than Adlam knew what to do with, and he was not willing to uh, just try to beat the market if he didn't have some particular special situation, he called them, where he thought he could make superior returns. He just didn't want to be a, a money manager. Um, and uh, but, but then the other thing people don't realize is that regardless of what his peak wealth may have been, he really was broke by the 1960s. Um, his wife, Jackie Cochran, consistently spent on the order of $500,000 a year when he was making $100,000 a year. I mean, she, she spent him into, into poverty. Um, and and the, the most remarkable document I found in Abilene is he uh, accounted for her as an investment. 
he kept a ledger where he literally kept what her cost basis was and adjusted it over time. He even at one point wrote down part of the asset because um, he no longer thought that that any of her businesses uh, were, were ever going to produce any return. Um, but as I say, it's very clear from those documents that she spent some multiple every year of, uh, of what he was making. And so increasingly, what he had to do to cover it was to pledge first his stock in Atlas and then the ranch that they owned near Palm Springs to secure loans from a man named David Baird. Um, and for a long time, uh, the assets probably exceeded the debt. But by the time you get to the 60s, it's pretty clear that the Atlas stock is worthless um, and the ranch may or may not be worth enough to cover the debt. And the sort of the final act was that um, um, Floyd's son, uh, Bruce, was allowed to develop the ranch uh, for residences in the early 70s. And did it, unfortunately, right when the oil crisis was hitting and there were 20% uh, interest rates on mortgage loans. And I don't think they sold a single house and the development went bust. And uh, Bruce uh, uh, killed himself, put a gun to his head and killed himself. And uh, Floyd and Jackie had had to move out of their house to a much, much smaller house. And, and they they had very little in the way of assets left by the time they both passed away. Um, and, and that sort of was just the final episode of there really was a uh, behind the scenes. His personal life was very, very uh, troubled. His, he, his sons could not live up to his expectations. He appears to have been a person who had he was very, very good at having friends among other business people and so on. But with the possible exception of Jackie, he doesn't seem to have been able to connect anybody that he lived with. Um, and uh, his sons couldn't live up to his expectations. Both of them killed themselves. His first son literally drank himself to death um, in the uh, uh, 50s, I guess it was. And then Bruce, as I say, committed suicide with a pistol in the 70s. Uh, his grandchildren just tell horror stories about sort of the dysfunction of the family, uh, and, uh, um, and and in any event, so so th th there's a lot there that's not in the the usual standard history. Now, when I look at the story, it, it it's almost it, the the things that were hard to for me to understand. Right? How did he end up? broke? How did he sort of disappear from public view? All of those things only make sense now that you've filled in the detail. And it's sort of strange to see that today there's obviously great fortunes are being made managing capital and he never did that, right? He just basically paid himself a salary and, and owned some stock and, and warrants. Um, but sort of before we, I mean, we know how the story ends, but I'd love to take it a little bit of a step back and sort of go to maybe the sort of the, the glory days and, and the period where he really um, um, found his um, found his his sweet spot, right? Sort of right after the crash, he um, he didn't he didn't foresee it, but he did manage to have capital. He he managed to raise capital uh, before the crash, and then sort of 
saw kind of all of this devastation on these deeply marked down assets around himself, around him. Can you maybe explain what he did, how he sort of structured these deals? Maybe there's a good example in terms of rolling up this industry and, and turning Atlas into the largest of these uh, of these investment companies. What was sort of the, I guess, the the genius that, um, that where he could, he could shine? Sure. Um, and uh, in order to to understand what he did after the crash, you have to go back before the crash a little bit. Um, in the 20s, um, any number of investment trusts were formed, typically by a sponsor like Goldman Sachs or somebody else. And they would raise money from public investors on the promise that they were going to pick stocks and do so well that that you were better off getting into this trust uh, than you were trying to pick stocks yourself. Um, it was something like the the uh, blind pools that occasionally you see people uh, do public offerings for today. Um, and people were, the, the stock market was so crazed in the 20s that people were willing to pour their money into these, even though they had huge upfront loads. The, the sponsors would take huge amount uh, upfront um, and, uh, and and then every year along the way for doing the uh, for being the investment advisor. But nonetheless, these trusts uh, raised huge amounts of money and they traded. Uh, people were so eager to get into them that they traded at multiples to the asset value of what they had in their portfolio. Um, so, you know, a, com- a trust might raise one hundred billion dollars. Uh, invest, you know, take 10 off the top, invest 90 million in the stock market. And yet within a few months, uh, the market cap would be $270 million. It'd be trading for some multiple of what the underlying uh, assets were worth. That that was how sure people were that things would just keep going up and up and up. Um, And and probably the, the most notorious of these ultimately after the market crashed were creatures created by Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs created um, an investment trust called Goldman Sachs Trading Corporation, um, and then it in turn um, created uh, Shenandoah and Blue Ridge, uh, two subsidiaries of, of uh, Goldman Sachs Trading Company that, uh, that also raised a huge amount of money. Um, when the stock market crashed, um, the the biggest crashers were these investment trusts, which had been trading at these multiples to what the underlying assets were worth. Um, and once the, the crash had occurred, you actually found the opposite phenomenon, which is that they were trading at substantial discounts um, to, to the underlying asset value. So in the hypothetical I gave a moment ago, where before the crash, you might have an entity with 90 million that had a market cap of 270. After the crash, uh, maybe its underlying securities had shrunk to 60, but it was trading at 30. Um, so there were, were very large spreads there if you were willing to commit the capital to gain control so that you could uh, liquidate underlying assets. And you might ask, well, why didn't the people who controlled the trust just do that themselves? And, and I think the answer is that they, their prestige was on the line for having created these entities in the first place. Uh, they were still taking substantial fees out for investment advice and so on. And um, 
they, they just didn't have an incentive to do a transaction that would simply lock in everybody's losses and completely destroy uh, their their prestige. So you, you what you typically had was management was resistant to the idea of somebody uh, uh, coming in and liquidating, even though anybody who did the numbers could see that there was a real spread there. Um, and so what what Lloyd Odlum did, and there were a handful of other people who did it on a smaller scale, but he was really the one person. I mean, I, I'm sure a number of people recognized this opportunity, but but recognizing it and being willing to put a lot of money into it when the stock market has just melted down is a different thing. And and he was the one person who was really willing to go in on a, a you know a large capital basis. To, to begin the process of, of rolling up these um, um, these investment trusts. Uh, so he started small. Uh, uh, the first couple of transactions, I think, were, were less than $10 million, uh, but each one made Atlas bigger and made it possible for Atlas to swallow something somewhat larger. Um, and typically what he would do would be he would buy Atlas would buy stock in the open market till it had a substantial position, and then it would make an exchange offer where it uh, offered to exchange Atlas shares for shares uh, uh, in in the target. And a key to this obviously was that that Atlas was the one investment trust that was not trading at a huge discount to its asset value. If it had been, its currency wouldn't have been. Um, uh, wouldn't have been valuable enough to pull this off, but because it had come through the crash relatively unscathed, and because it was pursuing a strategy that was different from anybody else was, um, it was able to to trade at a uh, in relation to its asset value in a way that made it a valuable uh, currency to use in these acquisitions. And, and indeed, one of the interesting things I found when I analyzed the economics of one of these deals was that in terms of making it work, um, the premium at which Atlas was trading to its asset value was actually a more important factor than the uh, discount to which the target was trading, um, because what you needed to have was enough of a spread so that Atlas could pay enough of a premium to the shareholders of the target to gain control. And then when it liquidated the assets, <clears throat> there still needed to be enough of the spread left that Atlas could make money, boost its assets per share, which made its currency only more valuable for the next transaction. So, over a period of about three years, Atlas acquired 22 other investment trusts. Um, the, the big target that it bagged at the end was Goldman Sachs uh, Trust uh, Trading Company, which in turn brought control of Shenandoah and Blue Ridge with it. Um, and uh, then Atlas went through a period of a couple of years where it was focused on um, getting rid of the minority shareholders of these companies, because obviously if um, um, you had 22 subsidiaries, each one of which had a different group of minority shareholders, you'd never be able to do anything. You'd never be able to sort out the conflicts of interest. So um, it would do squeeze out transactions where there was a small group um, um, and and uh, otherwise, you know, rationalize the structure until it, it got to a point where it, it was in a position to start looking for other opportunities. Um, 
And then for a while, at least, um, Odlum was was very good at finding situations. We called them special situations where for one reason or another, he thought um, there, there was uh, an unusual return to be made. Um, his investment in RKO Studios, which was one of the, uh, the, the five major studios in Hollywood at the time, was profitable. Um, he purchased uh, Convair, which was a manufacturer of, uh, of airplanes that uh, proved to be profitable. Um, and a, a, an investment that he made that, again, is indicative of the kind of research that he would do. Um, he bought uh, a number of, of oil companies, uh, companies in the oil industry. And the reason he did it was because his analysis of their proven reserves showed him that the reserves at the prevailing price of oil were actually worth more than what the companies were trading for on the market. So it was a, a similar situation to what he had done with the investment trust, where he found uh, market imperfections where the market was placing a lesser value on a legal entity than the assets inside it were really worth. Um, and, and again, he made a lot of money um, uh, uh, investing in oil. Um, and uh, I can go on to when the worm turned, if you want. But Yeah, uh, I, I'd love to talk about that, right? So, in, in, so I, I'll give you my understanding and then I'll let you um, correct it. But sort of, I, I see it as there was the period of ample opportunity, right? The 22 trust that you mentioned and sort of this, this big spread. And I, I love that you outlined sort of the, right, the difference in currency and valuation that was required um, because obviously you have to pay a premium and then there's transaction costs or cost of liquidation. Um, but still, that was a sort of a very unique period. And then it seems to me, right, the Great Depression is still ongoing. There are other kind of similar special situations, not as technical, right, but sort of distressed assets like RKO or um, um, the, um, the, the the oil companies, or I think you mentioned some of the others in the book. And then we get sort of to that point where the window, my understanding is sort of the, the window for all of these distressed opportunities maybe closes. And um, as you mentioned before, Jackie sort of entered the picture and this interest in aviation is there. And I'd love for, for you to sort of frame that a little bit because it seems to me, right, there's, there's Convair, which goes to General Dynamics. There's also an airline. There's, there's all sorts of things that sort of it seems to me his his mind or his his interests are shifting a little bit, and it seems that this also played a role in how later I guess the assets of of um, Atlas or his personal assets were depleted. So let's go to where the worm turns, but I'd love to understand sort of how um, he as a as a person how his thinking or his interests or, or passions may have have changed as well. Right. I, I mean, you know, that the the aircraft manufacturing business was obviously a very prominent industry, and he may well have found his way into it in any event. But as things actually happened, um, I think it's clear that he sort of got involved in it because his wife was a famous flyer. Um, in the 30s, uh, a very popular thing was was air races when people were trying to set speed records and so on. And Jackie was involved in in air racing. Um, she became a close friend of Amelia Earhart. Um, 
Uh, Floyd was was one of Earhart's major backers when when she did her first attempt to go around the world and crashed in Hawaii. He paid for the repair of that aircraft. Uh, Earhart stayed at the Odlum Ranch in Palm Springs between that failure and then when she left on the trip where she disappeared. Um, so they were very close and Floyd was one of her backers. Um, I think Floyd first met Howard Hughes through Jackie because he was also involved in air racing. And at some point, I, I, I'd have to go back and look at the exact details, but either he reached out to Floyd or vice versa over wanting to buy one of these very fast airplanes that that uh, uh, both Hughes and, and Jackie were interested in having for the air races. And they first did business um, in the air racing uh, area. Um, and so I think it was it was those things that got Floyd interested in in flying. Um, uh, Atlas, its first big investment in the area was, as I say, to buy Convair, which is short for Consolidated Vaulty Air. It was the result of an earlier merger, um, and uh, they manufactured a, a lot of the bombers that the Allies used during World War II, and that pr proved to be a, a profitable investment for um, for Atlas. Um, and, and there wasn't a single moment when the up became a down, but but it, and if there was time, though, when Floyd really was at his peak, it was probably in 1940 and 1941, right before the United States entered World War II. Um, at that point, Atlas, frankly, had more money than Floyd had opportunities for. And uh, he came up with a proposal to merge Atlas with Curtis Wright Corporation, which was an even larger manufacturer of airplanes. And um, because everybody was gearing up for World War II, Curtis Wright had orders coming out its ears, but it, it didn't have sufficient factory capacity to meet them. And it wasn't in a, a, a place to build more capacity because it had a quirky capital structure um, that I go into in a lot of detail in the book that basically made it impossible for it to do a new offering um, uh, without the consent of, of one of the older uh, classes of capital that was being difficult. Um, and Floyd came up with this idea of a merger where basically what would happen is that Curtis Wright would get access to this big pool of capital that Atlas had, and in return, Atlas would get control of the combined company. And this was sort of his exit strategy for Atlas, if you will. Um, and he spent months and months trying to craft a deal that would be acceptable to each of the classes of stock, both at Atlas and at um, at uh, Curtis Wright, who needed to vote in favor of this transaction. And it was, you know, you give enough to this group to make them happy, but then this group is unhappy and so on. But he's trying to structure a deal that'll work. And it's also getting a lot of public attention. Um, and um, Lloyd was one of the few industrialists who had cozied up to FDR and to the New Deal. He had uh, seen, you know, what the new wave was, and rather than fight it the way almost everybody else in Wall Street did, he had accommodated himself to it. He had contributed money to FDR. He had been friendly to the New Deal, and that had made certain enemies uh, for him on Wall Street. And it's apparent that that some of the resistance to him exiting Atlas in this way was people who wanted to get even. 
Uh, but for whatever re- for the combination of not being able to satisfy people and the opposition he was getting from various quarters, he ultimately had to abandon this proposal with Curtis Wright. And that was sort of the peak. If he had pulled that off, uh, who, who knows? And then in the following year, right before Pearl Harbor, as the United States is finally waking up to the fact that it needs to uh, uh, to get geared up for entry into the war, he was asked to work in the War Production Board. Um, and it was a job he didn't want. The, the job he wanted was to be a custodian who managed assets that were uh, frozen from foreign interests when, you know, when the war broke out, German and Italian and so on, uh, investments in the United States were, were seized and he wanted to be the custodian who would manage those assets. He thought that was the great job for him. But unfortunately, a lot of people wanted that job and FDR gave it to somebody else. And the job he got was a job that everybody, I think, realized was a loser, which is he was going to be the person within the War Production Board who was going to try to make sure that a large percentage of the spending for war production went to little companies instead of big companies, which was something that liberal Democrats were pushing very hard for as part of, of FDR's uh, uh, coalition, at least. And um, it, obviously, the big manufacturers hated the idea and also the Pentagon hated the idea because it was used to buying everything from this group of big manufacturers. And the last thing it wanted to do was to set up a whole new supply chain just when it tried to produce, you know, 10 times as much as of anything as it had before. So it, it would have been a difficult job for anybody to do successfully in any event. And uh, whether somebody else could have done a better job, uh, who knows, but Floyd by all accounts, failed at the job. It overwhelmed him. He didn't know what to do. Um, And eventually it ruined his health because he contracted, uh, I don't know if contract is the right word, but he was struck by rheumatoid arthritis that was so bad that it crippled him for a year and he was a semi-invalid for the rest of his life. And I think it's clear that that was triggered somehow by the stress of being for the first time in his life in a job where he was failing and he didn't know what to do. He was getting criticized by the press, and it was so bad that when he first went to the Mayo Clinic uh, with the rheumatoid arthritis, you know, people like Drew Pearson were writing columns basically saying there's something wrong with him. He's just gone to hide because he can't deal with uh, the criticism of the lousy job he's doing. So, um, you know, it was a very, very difficult time for him. So that 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 was sort of, you know, where between not pulling off the Curtis Wright deal and then his very negative experience in, in, in government in World War II, that was kind of when he passed over the peak, maybe, if you will. Um, and some of the investments that he made after that still did very, very well. I mean, at, at that time, he had Convair and he did the oil and, and RKO. And, and so the success continued for a while. But but starting when he came back to work after his recovery in like 1943 or 1944, he started to make some real bad decisions. Um, there, there were two uh, motorcycle manufacturers in the United States that had survived the Depression. Um, one of them was Harley Davidson, which went on to become an icon. Um, the other one was Indian. It's motorcycles. They actually spelled it without an R in there for some reason. But um, uh, which I think only kind of motorcycle aficionados have heard of today. Um, and unfortunately for Atlas, it was Indian motorcycles in which uh, 
Oblum invested. Um, and, and the investment went poorly. And, and he did something that I don't think he ever would have done in the past, which is he kept doubling down. Instead of cutting, cutting his losses and getting out, he just kept throwing good money after bad, um, which is very inconsistent with sort of the disciplined approach that he had taken earlier in his life. And ultimately, um, I think Atlas lost more than $10 million on that motorcycle investment, even though um, it, it never got any attention in the press. I, I was had no awareness of it until I... Uh, uh, I can't remember how I first found out about it, but it just, it, they managed to keep it out of the public awareness of what Atlas was doing. But if you look at how much they invested over a long, long period, they lost more than $10 million. And this is for a trust that at this point had less than 100. So this was a significant loss. Um, and then the other thing that he did, and, and you had asked about airplanes, and again, I think this was prompted by Jackie, um, he invested in Northeast Airlines. Um, which was a, a small uh, regional carrier. It had been created by the railroads uh, in New England, and the government had made clear as long as the railroads owned it because of the overlap, it wasn't going to give it any new routes. And so Floyd saw that as a special situation where if there's a new owner, they could get new routes and, and prosper. But it was also, I think, motivated in a lot so that Jackie could go on the board of an airline um, the same way that Lindbergh did. Um, and, uh, and Floyd did a lot of that. During World War II, he bought a magazine, Liberty Magazine, which soon went out of business so that Jackie could be a quote-unquote war correspondent and go to, uh, out to the Pacific Theater as the war was wrapping up. And uh, um, you know, again, he had done so well that Atlas shareholders put up with stuff like this, but it's very difficult to understand any other reason why he made that particular investment. Um, but so he invested in Northeast Airlines, which ultimately turned out to be an even bigger disaster than the motorcycles. Um, you know, initially some promising things happened. Um, it got uh, a route to fly from Boston to New York, which was very uh, attractive. And then even better yet, it got one of the routes to fly from New York to Florida just when people were starting to go to Florida to vacation all the time. Um, the, the, the problem is uh, it made a huge investment in propeller passenger airplanes at exactly the wrong time. Uh, its timing was so poor that by the time they were delivered, they were obsolete because everybody else was switching to jets. Um, and, and that ultimately ended up being um, um, a... a a financial disaster. And, and so Northeast Airlines was probably the single biggest loser for uh, Atlas in the 50s and into the early 60s before it was finally sold. And the early 60s was Northeast Airlines. Um, and then the, uh, the the final coup de grace, if you will, um, though it may actually not have cost quite as much money as Northeast Airlines did, was uranium. Lloyd decided in the early 50s or late 40s, early 50s, he said, uh, uranium is the oil of tomorrow and tomorrow is not far away. Um, and um, this runs, I mean, his philosophy, which he had stated over and over and over again when he was successful was, is buy what everybody else is selling and sell what everybody else is buying. It's a you know, classic contrarian uh, approach which is exactly what he had done during the Depression. 
instead now he ends up being the biggest buyer during the uranium boom when when everybody else is buying and prices are sky high uh but atlas uh buys almost every big proven uranium claim uh on the colorado plateau um and finally gets to the point where it, it's no longer really a diversified uh, investment company. By, by the mid-50s, Atlas is Indian motorcycles, Northeast Airlines, uranium, and not a lot else. Uh, and um, the uranium boom, as it turned out, lasted only as long as government price supports did. For a period after World War II, the government said, we will buy any uranium you can find for X price because they wanted to develop uh, they wanted people to go find uranium and make sure the United States had enough uranium for its defense needs. And, and so there were a lot of major strikes. But then finally, the government decided we've stockpiled enough uranium for our defense needs. And there are enough proven reserves that we know it'll never be a problem. And they stopped the price supports. And the, the market suddenly went to nothing. And the civilian use of uranium that Floyd had uh, anticipated never really developed. And and um, so the uranium investment ended up being, I mean, it's remarkable. People actually thought for a little while after World War II that there would be nuclear powered airplanes. I so saw that. that. He yeah. opined on that on television. I thought that was wild. Yeah. And, you know, it was because they didn't understand yet the, the radio radioactivity problem. And it was only as they began to understand that better that they realized the amount of lead shielding that would need to put between the engine and the crew was so heavy that the plane could never take off. So, you know, so there are a few things like submarines, which have buoyancy and so on, where it turned out to be practicable. But um, but a lot of anticipated uses of uranium never came to pass. And um um, the combination of these things killed Atlas. Um, so by the late 60s, um, Odlum is under uh, increasing pressure from his shareholders. He starts, you know, getting criticized for the first time. Uh, by a real quirk of fate, Howard Hughes had probably become the largest shareholder of Atlas. Um, after Atlas had sold RKO, to use, he had ruined the studio, um, and he, he really just wanted access to the starlets and to have somewhere where he could make his own crazy movies, but all the normal people left, and, and he basically destroyed the studio. And Archeo was left as this shell, but it had some huge loss uh, carry forwards. And Oddlub wanted that to, uh, to cover the profits he thought he was going to make from uranium. So he and Hughes engaged in a takeover fight for the shell of RKO, which Atlas eventually won. But because it paid Hughes with Atlas stock, he ended up as a significant shareholder of Atlas. Um, and so he was a significant shareholder at a time when a lot of other shareholders are becoming dissidents and are making noise about waging a proxy contest to get rid of Floyd, who's now 60 years old. And, and so the situation began to become untenable. Um, and there are younger people who Floyd has brought in to take over someday who obviously are beginning to chomp at the bit and saying, you know, we wish the old band would, would move on so that we could start um, running the company. 
Um, Floyd believed he had an agreement with Howard Hughes that he was going to manage Howard Hughes's business affairs. Um, and on that basis, in 1960, he let himself be talked into retiring. He left the company. He even left the board, which for a founders is really sort of unprecedented. Uh, and then, at least as Floyd saw it, Howard Hughes reneged on the deal, as he often did. Um, and, uh, and, and Floyd was kind of left with, uh, with nothing to do. Um, and... Um, you know, there there was a rumor, at least, that I mean, Floyd eventually settled with Hughes for a, a, an amount of money that was not enough to reverse uh, Floyd's uh, financial downturn, and there were rumors that uh, that uh, detectives employed by Hughes had discovered that Jackie had had an affair with Eisenhower, who came to the ranch all the time, and that that was the reason. But but in any event, there's. Um, um, that that's all in the book too. So uh, yeah. it, anyway, very very long answer to no to no. That's I as as is the book, and and I think it's it's owed in some cases just because the story there's it it's so complex. There's so many layers, right? Every time you look at a deal, there's I mean, I guess it also speaks to the to the very detailed uh, work that uh, that you've done. But at least for me, every time I had sort of a jumping off point, and I opened the um the uh, several pdf files that currently are the biography and i hope i really hope we'll see this as a as a book i'd, I'd love to read it and obviously i will um link to the um to the introduction that you put online and i hope we can make this more accessible to uh to more people but every time i had a jumping off point I and i dug in i i realized you you found so much um, you'd found an entire new story in there. there. There's so many characters, so many deals. Um, and it's, um, sort of unfortunate, right? I mean, it, it, it is what it is, but it's, it's, um, kind of tragic in the way this, this story ends. Um, even though it starts with so much promise and so much uh, financial uh, creativity. Um, but, uh, th this has been a lot of fun, David. I really appreciate that we could have this conversation. And, and like I said, I'd, um, uh, as this goes online, I'll obviously make sure that um, people understand where they can uh, find you and your work, and I and I really hope that we'll see it in uh, in print uh, in in the in the future. I do too. To to get there, I've got to finish it, and as you can tell, I have difficulty leaving things out. It's already seven hundred and fifty pages long, and there are still large parts that haven't been written yet. But uh, but there's uh, there's a lot there. I suspect I'm going to have to finish the giant version and then write a condensed 200 or 300 page version to actually get published in a traditional sense. But uh, but the material is there now for anybody who wants uh, to uh, uh, to acquire the work in progress. Um, so anyway. yes, we'll do that. And I, I can relate to the to the idea of of um, going the extra step. And and but but it's 700 pages and some of it is still unfinished. I. Uh, I look forward to the full version, but I, I suspect uh, an abridged version might be uh, um, more, might be more digestible for some. But this again, I really appreciate um, you sharing um, your everything you've learned about uh, Adlam and uh, and your work. And I hope we can we can bring it up to a, to a broader audience. Thank you. So well, much. thank you very very much for having me. I appreciate it.